hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I am here with the marvellous Jason Thompson. Say hello, Jason. Hello, Jason. There you go. There's mine for this oh, story. I did one for you. You did one for me. We're even. I um, I rather enjoyed the Power of Daleks episode one. How did you find it? I found it brilliant. I, I loved the story ever since I first heard it. I, I came to it, as I said, through the the 1993 Tom Baker narrated audio cassette version, um, which was bought for me by my nan. Uh, and I went straight into the room because I, I was staying up with her um, for a week. Every every summer, my sister and I would stay with grandparents. So I'd stay with my nan and my mum's mum and my sister would stay with my grandma, my dad's mum. Yeah. And then the next year we'd swap over. <clears throat> And I was with I was with my nan, and she bought it for me from Woolworths in town. Oh, Woolies! And I disappeared straight in and listened to it on a tiny little portable cassette player um, in that in the room that I was staying in. And so every time I listen to this story, I kind I kind of think of her, which is nice. Was that was that the cassettes with the Tom Baker narration? That was with the Tom Baker narration, yes. So the the really bizarre Eric Sayward scripted first person Tom Baker narration, yeah. which included lines like "A pain as sharp as a pterodactyl's hunting knife danced across the cortex of my brain." So you can't help but market his own stories. Say someone hit you over their head. Why are you making up all this crap? <laughs> Do you remember the narration in the Macrotero at the end of episode one? He he goes, "The crab-like creature was hideous." Oh, it was so bad. I never got the Macro Terror. Oh. I had the power of the Daleks, I had the evil of the Daleks, and I got the Tomb of the Cybermen, which oh, was okay. great because, of course, that one was only released because contractual obligation. Oh, Jason seems to have fallen into a time warp. Hang on, we might get him back in a second. I lost you there completely for a second. I don't know where that sentence was going to end. Ooh, it was bizarre. Hmm. And then you literally at any point continue your story. Uh, where did it leave off? Because I thought it was the last bit I said. Well, I uh, you said you went in and you you would listen to it on a very small tape player, and that's about where we got to. Yeah, I listened to it on a very small portable cassette player um, all the way through because uh, it kept me enthralled for the whole six episodes. Um, and so every time I see this story now, I think of two things. One is Tom Baker's amazing narration and the other is my nan because she bought me the cassette and uh, she was a lovely lady, lovely lady. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a good story. But because I'm so used to the audio cassette version of it for so long, um there are a couple of bits in the episodes that sound weird because they were not in the cassette for various reasons they were edited out uh-huh. um and i still expect there to be a gap halfway through episode two and halfway through episode five because they had three episodes on the tape so it went through episode one and half of episode two and then you turn over to get half of episode two and episode three and the same for the other tape. So I still expect there to be a gap, and there isn't, which is kind of, well, that's weird. So, like, where you're, what, an episode and a half into the story, 
there's like a starting point again for you halfway through episode two, like where there's where yeah. the, you know the second tape started. Oh, yeah, it it just stops in the middle, and then so to actually and the weird thing is it stops in the middle of a scene. It's not even at a cut point. So I um, just I first discovered this. Uh, it was the BBC audio that they brought out, like right. um, a, like a three or four disc set. But also on the BBC, they had the telly snaps. Mm. And so I waited quite late to get this. Um, I think with the missing stories, I just avoided them altogether to start off with. Um, and to listen to it and to look at the telly snaps, I remember thinking, my God, this must have looked incredible when this was on. Like they, they threw some resources at this. They, they've thrown a good director at this. Um, visually, it's really interesting. It's a great story. Um, and it's it's probably my number one. I wish they could find it. I would love to get this back. It's amazing what there is. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, in, when you think about it, there's, there's some actual clips which have turned up in other shows which have been recovered from other programs, have nothing to do with Doctor Who at all. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple from Blue Peter. There's eight millimeter film of a fan pointing his camera at the television screen, which is why we've got some of the little clips post-regeneration and, and things like that. There's telly snaps. There's the soundtrack. There's even the original voice recording of the Daleks all blowing up at the end, still available. Um, but... and. Um, but what isn't available is the bloody episodes. <laughs> but you can see <laughs> why it was it was perfectly feasible for them to do the animation of this because, as you say, there's a lot of visual uh, bits and bobs, including the telly snaps. Like God bless those bloody telly snaps, right? What's his name, John Cura? Oh, John Cura. Yeah, they're, they're incredible, and it's amazing how much visual material there is for episodes. There's actually not many episodes out of the ninety-seven that are still missing that have absolutely no record of any part of the program as yeah. broadcast. And there's only one serial, one complete serial, which is the Massacre, which is a superb serial. But there is not a scrap of visual evidence of that <laughs> of how those episodes looked. There's behind-the-scenes photographs and publicity photographs, right. but there's no telly snaps, no clips, no eight-millimeter film, no nothing. It's really bizarre. I mean, but I'm, I'm, so I'm not, not going to do what Pete it. Lambert did, which was to make a direct link between the woman that junked the episodes and Hitler, but. I am going to say... I wouldn't go that far. No. no, no, but I think there's a lot of people that curse her name. Yeah, but, you know, it was a different time. The concept of home media didn't exist at the time. So, you know, they, they'd sold them overseas. They'd got their repeats that they were contracted to do. It was just taking up space. And they needed the videotape, which wasn't cheap. So you it's can kind of understand why they did it. I wish they hadn't. It's heartbreaking really just to say, I think the power of the Daleks 1 to 6 was just taking up space. Oh, yeah, man. I know. It's, it, we, with hindsight, obviously, we all wish oh. they hadn't done it. But I can kind of understand why they did it at the time. Yes, for sure. <clears throat> well, should we skip into the second episode? Let's skip into the second episode. Why not? The Daleks are there. In five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Oh, a little pause. A uh, technological challenge, as ever. Um, there's one very interesting thing about this cliffhanger, right? 
and something that happens later on in the story. Do you remember in the Daleks when uh, they disable the Dalek and uh, take the mutant out of the shell? And then there's that tiny cliffhanger of just like the claw. And they, they yeah. didn't dare show anything else at the time. It was considered too graphic. Things have changed, haven't they? They have. This is the first story to actually show us the Dalek mutant in full. Um, <clears throat> and you see it you see it kind of very briefly here, kind of scuttling across the floor. But later on, you see whole mutants, don't you, being put in Dalek shells. You do. You do indeed. Now, this is an interesting story with the Daleks because it does something that hadn't been done up to that point with the Daleks. This is the first time we've seen them at a disadvantage. You know, in their first story, they were in their city. They were limited because they drew power from the floor and they couldn't go outside. Um, all sorts of other issues with, with that story. But yeah, the Dalek <laughs> invasion of Earth, they were the conquering aliens, lording it over the human race. The chase, they were... Conquering um, time, of all things. Yeah, but they were also staggeringly incompetent. So. They, they, oh, <laughs> come on now. The Daleks in the chase. They're some of my favourite Daleks. In I love I love the chase. I absolutely love the chase. But turning them into figures of fun was perhaps uh, a dubious decision. That's which what was happens, then, you know, when you've got Terry Nation, a comedy writer, and Dennis Spooner, a very funny writer, writer. joining forces. Yeah. But then, of course, in Dalek Master Plan, they were the universal conquering, all-powerful aliens. That really kind of cemented them in that role, I think. But then here, they're inactive. And they're not in control. And that's new and interesting. And possibly one of the most interesting things that was done with the Daleks ever. Oh, I, I completely agree. And I, and I think um, giving the Daleks to David Whittaker... Actually, no, this is Whitaker and Spooner, isn't it? Because I was watching the special features. Whitaker wrote the scripts. They were less than satisfied with some elements of it. And then Spooner essentially did a page one rewrite, didn't he, of the entire thing? He did. And apparently neither David Whitaker nor Terry Nation particularly liked the result. None of them, neither of them were keen on this story. Really? Um, David Whitaker didn't like how much his scripts were rewritten and Terry Nation felt that it made the Daleks too weak and too nice. Um, <clears throat> but that was, that was, the, that was the whole I mean, point, surely. That was the whole oh, point, yeah. was to make them appear vulnerable and then prey on the greed of everybody in this colony. Definitely, definitely. There was a little moment there which I meant to talk about what in the context of what's left and what we miss by not having the actual episodes. Um, because there's that, there's a little film clip of that fan in Australia who aimed his eight millimeter camera at a television screen while these things were being shown and recorded lots of little clips. And there's one where, there's the bit where the doctor says that one Dalek is all that's needed to wipe out the entire colony. Yeah. And the line itself is absolutely fine. On the soundtrack it's, you know, with the music it's great. But in the clip, there's, that's immediately followed by Ben and Polly looking at each other and then looking back at the capsule as if to say, well, holy crap, what have we actually opened up? And that just shows the kind of things we're missing by not having yeah. some of these episodes. What you can get from seeing them is quite surprising at times. Definitely. Well, I mean, I, I'll never forget. So I loved uh, Enemy of the World as a soundtrack. Um, 
you know, it's it's a story that translates really well to audio. But the layers that it gets when you can actually watch it, it it's it's so different. Absolutely. And then but the contrast with that, at the same time, the web of fear was recovered. And I don't think you really got much from being able to see the web of fear that you didn't get from the soundtrack yeah. because it took place in such limited locations that were already seen in episode one anyway. I think it's so interesting when, I mean, think, when things come back into the archives, how the reputation has changed. It's so yeah, interesting. It, it is interesting to see. I mean, I, I remember when Tomb of the Cybermen came back and every time it's been released ever since, there's always been arguments over it because yeah it's two of the cybermen it's one of the best stories ever it really is it really it's fantastic it's a great story but let's be honest sometimes visually it falls very very yeah. short yes you know, and the plot is a bit nonsensical because the cybermen are defeated because they forget to put an interior door handle on there too you know <laughs> so I mean, talking about visually yeah what uh, in power of the daleks the show is doing something it doesn't often do. It's it's doing a story where I don't think it's overly ambitious. This story is it's you know you need a lot of rooms, you need a capsule, and you need some Daleks. So it's a Doctor Who story that absolutely on the page is translated absolutely on the screen how you'd expect it to look without any kind of duff moments. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the design is great. I and mean, the designer on this episode, I mean, look, look at, I mean, Lester's laboratory has that big panoramic window out the back mm. with a picture behind it of something much bigger outside. And that was there. Just, that's on the telly snap. That was absolutely there. Yeah, it's absolutely, that's not a liberty they've taken with the animation. That's actually part of the design. You know, they've made it look bigger than it actually is rather than some sets where they clearly are in a very small studio. They haven't really made, gone out of their way. Interesting. The only other serial that the guy who designed this one, whose name escapes me completely, mm. um, did was The Wheel in Space. Oh, okay. And so when you look at this and The Wheel in Space, you can see the similarities. And in fact, I think they reused the window grating, the circular window gratings in this episode. I think they reused them as the ventilation shaft things in The Wheel in Space. Um, well, I'll say, so, yeah. I'll say there are many things that are wrong with The Wheel in Space, but the design of it is not one of those things. I, I would agree, yes. <clears throat> so here we go. So we are uh, now. Lesterson is another. Uh, I mean, oh, is he the best guest character in this? It's hard to choose because they're all really good. I think he's brilliant. Um, yeah, he's great. He's just obsessed with, you know, I, I, I found a curiosity. I'm going to investigate, I'm going to figure out what this is. I love the fact um, that even when even when it's kind of clear that the Daleks are up to no good, he's been promised stuff, and you know he's like scientifically and the, and and his hunger for that it, it blinds him to the fact that they are exploiting him terribly. It does uh, until his final breakdown when he mm. goes completely off the rails, and that is just yeah brilliantly portrayed. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. But, okay, but yeah, so his I, being a bit weird in a way that Hartnell's Doctor never would. Again, still leaning into that. Is this really the Doctor we're looking at here? He's farting around with fruit and talking nonsense. I mean, Hartnell was like an authoritarian, wasn't he? And he absolutely would um, kind of schmooze with the people in charge. He he didn't really butt heads with people, did he? He he was quite a, like a respectful Doctor. Uh, think, think of like the savages again, where he's like sitting around, you know, and and they're all talking about you know, adventures out in the universe and things like that. 
Whereas Trout is almost like deliberately um, anarchic, isn't he? And butting heads with people. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Crackers. Okay, oh, continuity reference here. Oh yes, met Marco Polo. Yes, indeed you did. <laughs> I want to ask you about Polly and Ben in general and how effective you think they are. Oh, good. Nice, easy questions. Thanks. That's great. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, Polly and Ben, I think, are really, really good um, companions. I think it's a great shame that most of their stuff is missing. Um, I think that's really quite tragic, and so they tend to get overlooked, I think. Um, I mean, I, I came to this story through... I only knew about Polly and Ben because I read the, the excellent book Doctor Who the 60s by Hal Stammers and Walker. Oh, yeah. Who yeah. oh, the hell are Polly and Ben? Because none of their episodes are, you know, I haven't I haven't seen The War Machines wasn't out. Um, the Smugglers was missing. The Tenth Planet was missing its final episode and wasn't released for years. Power was missing. Highlanders missing. Only one episode of The Underwater Menace was available. Yeah. You know, and it, I, it wasn't until I got hold of Cybermen the early years and I saw the Moonbase parts two and four that I saw them actually in anything. And, and even, I thought they were really good, actually. Even their best episode of the Moonbase is missing, which is episode three, where they're being yeah. really proactive. Polly's amazing in episode three. Yeah. I've, I've gone on a bit of a journey with these characters because I, I used to think they were like some of the best, really engaging. And the more I watch Polly, she kind of irritates me a bit now. Um, <laughs> in stories like The Highlanders, where she's being like terribly patronising to Kirsty, mm. and um, and they're a little bit hysterical at times as well. Both of them, they're kind of pitched at a quite hysterical level. And I think that is something you can kind of point at 60s companions in general and say, I don't know. I, I think I think uh, on paper they're they're very engaging. I'm not sure if I always like them very much. Uh, I, I think they're great. I like them. And, uh, but I think, again, going, what we said in episode one, in this story, they're pitched absolutely perfectly. And there is a bit of hysteria at the end, but that's quite understandable in the circumstances. You know, the Daleks are rampaging through the colony, killing everyone. Of course they're going to be upset and hysterical. Of course they are. You know, so, but, uh, but, yeah, this this just... This is a wonderful um, television trope, isn't it, of the viewers know something is not right here more than the characters do because you're looking at this thing and they're playing with a Dalek and all the viewers are thinking, leave it alone, it's going to be it's gonna be bad. And it's like, this is interesting. I wonder what would happen if I powered it up. <laughs> the suspense that they drive out of this idea of you just going, what are you doing for like six uh, episodes? And then by the end, I'm like, Oh, you deserve this. I'm sorry. But there's interestingly, a, there's the cassette point, the Polly's line, Doctor, what was it? Is the end of sign one. Oh my god, so it's it's halfway through an exchange as well. Yeah, and then the door knocking is is just a direct continuation of that scene. But in my head, it, it really sounds weird when it comes straight after Polly's line. If um Troughton had been Hartnell. I don't think this story could have played out in the same way because I think Hartnell would have walked in and had enough sort of gravitas to convince them very quickly the Daleks, you know, it, they're, they're up to no good. But because Troughton is like very furtive and 
it takes him quite a while. So, no, I don't think I don't think he ever convinces them at all. It's only when the Daleks start spilling out and murdering everybody that they realise, oh god, these things are you know they're deadly. Yeah, um, <clears throat> and even then, it takes so much for them to actually believe anything that he's saying. I mean, but yeah, I mean, Hartnell would have gone in with his looking neat and yeah. authoritative, and he would have just said, "Oh, do this, do this. This is wrong. Shut this down. I want this done, and so on and so forth." Whereas Troughton, he's in his scruffy, ill-fitting clothes, behaving like a bit of a you know joker. Of course, they're not taking him seriously. But they're all too self-obsessed anyway with their own issues. But there's there's almost something like you remember in um, Resolution, the uh, Jodie Whittaker episode, where we start off with the Dalek mutant, and then it builds the Dalek, and it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger throughout the story, and then at the end, it's like this truly like formidable force. That's exactly what's done here, isn't it? Is it they're they're empty shells in the first episode. And then we actually see an entire army being built before finally they are lit. I, I think in episode six, they are the most terrifying the Daleks have ever been. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, Do you think yeah, some... it's, 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 it's coming to life and it's got Lesterson's going, you know, I can't think what this short stubby arm is for. All the viewers are going, oh, my it's God, God don't, don't, you can't just get the gun. It's going to kill you. It's like, I wonder what this is. It's, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, that is great. The the, the, the the fun and the interaction you can have with the viewer with this idea. Oh, Lesterson, yeah. what is wrong with you? Yeah. I mean, they hardly look playful, do they? Like, I mean, it looks scary. It's, it's built like a tank, for God's sakes. Yeah, it's... Oh, yeah. But no, I mean, at this point, of course, the humans haven't encountered the Daleks before. So you know, this is this is one of those ones. I mean, you said in episode one it was set in the future. Uh, it's not anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. We established, I think, off mic that this is set in 2020. Indeed, yeah. Um, oh. it, was, it didn't make it into the final dialogue on the screen, but it was mentioned in the trailer and in the scripts, in the original scripts. This was supposed to be set in 2020, which of course seemed a long way away in 1966. But um, I was offered a post on Vulcan, you know, in 2020. I'm glad. You? I'm bloody glad I didn't take it now. Well, you should be, yeah, absolutely. Although, given how 2020 has been, this would have been entirely in keeping with the whole theme of the year, really. You know, um, oh, yeah. well, well, actually, I probably would have been better off on Vulcan, wouldn't I? Quite possibly. Vulcan, you, oh, Vulcan. Have yeah, you oh, seen the, um, the publicity pictures of this set, you know, with the lava lamps in the middle? It looks mm. so good. It's really colourful. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it does look great. The design and the, the the building of these sets is is fantastic. Now, no doubt, if we got the episodes back, there would be a couple of wobbly bits, mm -hmm. and maybe someone would accidentally put a switch off in their hand in the background somewhere, and you'd have the typical things. But but how it looks and the work the work they put into it, it's it's fantastic. I would be prepared to take the risk of a few buttons coming off in hands. Definitely, definitely. I would love to have this story back. I've got, a, I've got a, bit, a bit of a bizarre question. I don't even know if you'll know the answer. But So with black and white TV, right, why didn't they just make, like, grey, black and white sets? Like, why did they make colour sets? 
like bright colors. These are these are bright sets in in reality. They are, um, they are indeed. Uh, I think it probably would have been a bit weird for the actors if they hadn't just gone with all the colors. Um, but also, the, the interesting thing about the colors they chose was, of course, they they made it to be in black and white. And so the colors sometimes look a bit weird when you see the color pictures. Like the TARDIS looks like it's white, but of course it's actually slightly off, slightly yeah, green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was actually white, it would have just oversaturated the cameras. This is a bit of a weird moment, actually, isn't it? This is the Doctor presents a button that he was that he got, and they say, "Oh, it belongs to Quinn." Does Quinn only have one shirt that now has a missing button? Did he not change at any point so that it wasn't obvious that was his button? I mean, how long has this been? This, this, this <laughs> may have um, taken off in the first place. This may have slipped through between the the Dennis Spooner and David Whittaker takes on this story, maybe. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to set it up. So the idea is that it looks like the Doctor grabbed the button off Quinn while he was being attacked. Obviously, he didn't. So who nicked Quinn's button? Didn't Quinn notice? <laughs> Why hasn't he changed his shirt? You know, we'll never know the answer. questions. Yeah. But you know what? Given this was written and then rewritten, it's very tight, isn't it? Oh, it is. It, it's really well done. Um, Buttons aside. Oh my God! That, oh, that's some, the that, looking at it. Yeah, the POV shots are great. Yeah. I was really aware of them when I did the Daleks recently. There were some cracking POV shots in there as well. And I think those shots are useful to remind us that there's something inside the Dalek looking out, you know? Yeah, definitely. Oh, there we go. The Dalek has killed someone. Well, that's just unheard of, Jason. It's amazing. But this is an intriguing moment, isn't it? From the Janley runs over to Resno. And, oh, he's not dead. He's like, hang on, what? Is he actually not dead, or is he dead? And is she lying for some reason? What's what's her game? Oh, I love the fact that later on, when she just goes, "Oh yeah, he's dead," like so offhand. Yes. What? You, so that's quite unusual, isn't it? To have a very strong, morally ambiguous female-ish villain i don't i don't want to say she's she's an out and out villain because she's she's just a bit um power mad isn't she but it's unusual for 60s who to have strong female characters like this it is yeah um i mean it's something it, it, it's a bit of a shortcoming in some respects in that <clears throat> she's the only other speaking female part in this whole story yeah and you know they go to a lot of trouble to try and build this colony up as a as a realistic large thing. I mean, it's got it, they talk about mining operations. It's got a perimeter. It's got an interior. The governor goes for a visit, and he's gone for ages. You know, so it's not like you know colony in space where you've basically got a dome and a couple of other domes, yeah. and you're all within spitting distance of each other. Um, you, you get the impression this has been there for a while. It's built up. And it's built up to the point where it has uh, a good organizational structure. You've got a governor, a deputy governor, you've got a security force, you've got scientists, you've got, you've also got other people, but you never see the other people until the final episode where they all come in and get killed. I think that's but, the only point where you see another woman, you know, there's a woman clutching a baby yes. in episode six. 
there's a couple of there's a couple of women who get killed in episode six. Um, but so they've made this colony seem really huge, but then they've only got a cast of half a dozen other people. You know, they could have had a few more people sort of milling around in the background, maybe, or you know, a couple of extra, a few more extras, perhaps. But um, but yeah, it's it, they they they've really built up a quite believable colony here on on Vulcan. Um, which has nothing to do with Star Trek, by the way. Well, I see. I asked you this question earlier. Um, now, Vulcan on Star Trek came after this, I believe. Nothing, absolutely nothing. I think it came more or less at the same time because Star okay. Trek started in the US in 1966. So <clears throat> it would have been kind of at the same time, but there's no reason because Star Trek didn't immediately become the huge fan favorite that it is now at this point it was still that great sci-fi show that is loved in america it hadn't been seen over here so it definitely didn't just pinch it from star trek well, i was gonna say i very much doubt there were like moles from doctor who in star trek or oh, vice versa you know it's just yeah, an incredible yeah. coincidence that at the same time both shows had a planet called vulcan i mean it's the, it's the name yeah. of a greek god isn't it vulcan Vulcan is Vulcan was actually the name of a hypothetical planet that was inside the orbit of Mercury. They believe. Oh. Uh, so, and I'm saying all this conscious that uh, someone with a degree in astrophysics can probably hear everything I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Jason's but, wife um, is nearby. <laughs> but but yeah, so Vulcan was um, held to be in there because. Uh, a chap called Urban Leverrier, French scientist, uh, was studying the planets, and he actually discovered the planet Neptune okay. because of Newton, Isaac Newton's theory of universal gravitation. So he studied the planet Uranus and figured out that it wasn't where it was supposed to be, according to Newton's equation. So he hypothesized that there was another planet out there influencing its movements. And lo and behold, he calculated where it should be. They pointed telescopes, in that, and there was Neptune. So they also looked at Mercury and they found that Mercury didn't follow Newton's rules. It wasn't where it was supposed to be. So they figured there must be something else in there as well, influencing Mercury. So they spent ages trying to find this thing, which is very difficult to do because it's difficult to look at anything close to the sun uh, without burning your eyes out, especially with optical instruments. Um, but it wasn't until 1915 when Einstein came up with his general theory of relativity to explain gravity that that explained why Mercury wasn't where it was supposed to be. His equations for gravity explained Mercury's motion. So this planet, Vulcan, was no longer really considered to be a real thing. But at this time, some people, even in 1966, even up to the 1970s and 80s, some people still thought it might be there and they were still trying to find it. Um, it's unlikely that this planet Vulcan is the one that they're talking about being just inside the orbit of Mercury because that would make it unbelievably hot. <laughs> I, I, I'm literally looking at you right now like a student with moon eyes. Jason, you are an intensely interesting man, I have to say. Not many people say that about me. So oh. <laughs> well, there you go. I like to be you. I am your servant. Look at that. Another cracking cliffhanger. It's a superb cliffhanger. It throws everything we know about the Daleks up in the air. So it's like, what is going on now? What's the Doctor saying to him? Like, destroy me or something. He's asking him to, to kill him, isn't he? 
Uh, he's talking about the Daleks, the other thing he does most efficiently is exterminate human beings. It destroys them completely, and the Dalek is talking over him and trying to... And do you know what's great about that? That's not a moment of jeopardy. It's just a moment of, like, complete suspense, isn't it? Because it's just so it, fucked up. Yeah, it's a plot development cliffhanger, not a kind of, oh, we've come to the end of the episode, let's put somebody pointing a gun at the Doctor for a bit and then have them change their mind at the last second, two, 30 seconds into episode three. You know? I actually think, you know, every single cliffhanger in this story is a plot development one, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. 